right. So, Simon, welcome to the studio. It's great to be here. Um, I'm so happy that you made your way to Toronto. You know, it's uh, it's a city that's uh, actually been been a, a, a an interesting part of my story and just a place that I immediately connected to the first time I came here, probably 15, 20 years ago. Um, moving over from the U.S., uh, sorry, moving over from the U.K. to the U.S., you know, I, I sort of embarked on a world where I really didn't know anybody. And I found some of the very early events I went to, I was naturally drawn towards uh, Canadian brethren. Um, <laughs> I think I remember being invited to a dinner at my first ever Cornet event that was just for people that weren't American and uh, several Canadians, uh, some of whom will be there tomorrow, uh, were at the event. And, uh, you know, the first time I came up to Toronto, I really just sort of fell for it, right? I have always felt that it's sort of like a smaller, nicer, friendlier version of New York, right? It has mm -hmm. that vibe. It has that energy. It has that cultural melting pot. It has amazing food, good people. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's always been somewhere that, that I felt drawn to. And when we, or when I established Purposeful Intent, um, it's an interesting anniversary today that I'll talk to you about, but when I established Purposeful Intent, I, I always wanted to bring it to this area specifically. So mm. super excited for tomorrow and for, for having our first international event, um, in Toronto. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, it's funny hearing, and I, and I said, I think I saw when, when you landed, you posted something on LinkedIn or something and said, yes, the first international event. Yep. And it was weird for me to, to, to hear that about someone coming to Canada. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe we're so, we've become myopic. You know, we, we encompass the world and at the same time, like we are Canadian. So we're always hearing people going out into the world, but being of the world. Anyway, so it's awesome to have you guys do your thing here. And we're really happy. I'm really happy to host you tomorrow uh, in our big studio. Um, but let's talk about coming from the UK to the US. What was the impetus for you? Uh, as is often the case, it was a young lady mm. um, who I've uh, now been married to for 18 years. Um, I, I was going back and forth to Arizona from London for a client uh, that I was working with. They was a company called Land Securities Trillium. Um, and at this time, sort of back in uh, late 90s, early 2000s, they bought the BBC's entire portfolio of property and leased it back to them. And as part of that deal, they needed technology to run all of the core services like lease administration and space and FM. And uh, the CIO at the time found this little company in Phoenix, Arizona, who he felt was the was the best fit. Um, none of us really agreed, but you know he was uh, he was leading the charge. So we ended up going back and forth to Arizona a lot of times. And uh, actually, on my first trip, I met uh, my my uh, my now wife Jill. And um, so after we got, she lived in the UK with me for a while. And then after we got married, we decided to, to settle in Arizona. So it's uh, yeah, been uh, close to 18 years there now. So Man. So you were a young man when you came to Arizona. I was a young man. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I still try and be as lively as I used to be. But uh, but yeah, it was, you know, it was a new world for me. And it was intriguing because I, to this day, don't know if it wasn't for that opportunity, if ever I would have come to Arizona, right? It's not typically a place that tourists go from the UK, right? They, they, they want to go to the closer areas like uh, Florida or they want to go to Vegas. But, you know, so for a lot of people, uh, Arizona was sort of a stopping point. I will still go into restaurants, bars, shops sometimes and people will be like, oh my God, I love your accent because they don't get a ton. They're like, are you from Australia? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why, the other reason why I would draw into Toronto because I like having a much bigger melting pot. Um, Arizona's getting there, um, but yeah. still, you know, is is not as as multicultural as anywhere else I've ever lived but but it's home um it's uh it's a nice place to go and relax and I have a, a soon to be 6 year old who uh, takes up a lot of my time oh, uh, yeah. which is fantastic so yeah my daughter's four and a half. Oh, great four and a half going on you know 85 <laughs> 
<laughs> it's the best ages. They really are. Yeah, so much fun. So every uh, every day is just such an adventure. So much fun. Um, so that's really interesting to me because I've been to Arizona. I've been to Phoenix. Phoenix? Yeah. Yeah. That's where I've been. So spread out. But the people are nice. Chill. Very easy to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Very relaxed. So let's talk about this real estate story. You you were previously to moving to the States, you were already in some facet of real estate? Yeah, I kind of fell into real estate technology um, at a university. Sort of my, my full background is I, I did a law degree, uh, decided in my last year that the people who were doing law degrees weren't the kind of people I necessarily wanted to spend the rest of my life working with um, and branched out and I did a master's degree in business with IT. Uh, really enjoyed the technology side of the space and then kind of sort of fell into a career coding Um learned very, very quickly that I am not a coder. My brain just does not work that way. My wife is completely opposite. She's very mathmat- math- very mathematical, very analytical, whereas I'm way more sort of on the, on the social uh, sciences side of the space. Um, but what I found I was very good at, which at the time I think was more of a premium, was being able to be that bridge between, you know, the propeller head technology nerds and the business people. So I had roles where essentially I would help develop requirements and understanding of, you know, what were the business trying to achieve and be able to translate that into computer language for the, uh, for the developers to build. Um, and then just, you know, by happenstance, went to a property company in, in early 2000s in the UK, and that was sort of where it all, all grew from there. Certainly not a career I'd aspired to be as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, now it's, you know, 20, 22 years plus uh, all around um, corporate property technology, so... Yeah, it's fascinating because, I mean, I would think that that whole realm was pretty nascent when you got into it. And even now, I mean, like a lot of the kind of, what do we call it? Do people say prop tech? Prop tech. CRE tech. Prop tech. <laughs> Add tech to anything and you've got something <laughs> new. Um, but the prop tech kind of startups that I've been seeing, you know, in, in various incubators, accelerators around the world uh, are not necessarily solving new problems, a lot of them, you know. And their solutions are not necessarily unique. Um, it's just the the fervor for you know innovating in an industry that seems stayed. Uh, in particular, locales can source capital from VCs. It seems like. Um, but what are you seeing from the landscape of of let's say you know software that's available for operators of property now versus then? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know. You hit the nail on the head, Kasim. One of the big things that we do see is, you know, people ubiquitously, ubiquitously use the term prop tech. And when I meet somebody who says, oh, yeah, I'm an expert in prop tech, my immediate thought in my head that I don't always vocalize is how can you be, right? Because prop tech consists of everything from residential to industrial to retail to commercial, even within the commercial space, breaking down between, you know, technologies that are geared towards the financial side of the deal and the brokerage side of the deal versus where I've always played, which is, what happens inside of the portfolio, right? How do you ensure your leases are paid? How do you ensure you've got the right amount of space? In this day and age, how do you ensure, you know, you can bring people to the office using the right type of tech and then track the actual utilization, right? Mm-hmm. So so it's a very, very small piece of prop tech. Um, and I think that's why, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing more investment in prop tech on a larger scale uh, because it hasn't been traditionally very innovative at all. Um, and really, I think what COVID has done is kind of changed the mantra. Uh, there's a friend of mine in the UK, a guy called Chris Kane. Chris used to be head of real estate for the BBC and for Disney. Um, and uh, he has a great book called Where's My Office? And, and this was actually pre-pandemic talking about 
the fact that, you know, really the equation was broken because office space was always seen as a deal uh, between, you know, the investors, the landlords, etc. And the user of the actual space, you know, the actual physical employee was rarely considered. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that's really come to the fore within uh, within COVID. So I think now where we're seeing sort of significant growth of, of solutions is those technologies that actually help people make better use of when they're in the space, help people advise maybe when they should even be coming to the space. Um, we're seeing a lot of investment still in that because it's, you know, there's no clear market leaders, frankly, across the board. Um, and I think we're also now seeing a convergence of things we've hoped for for years, which is really focusing on the role of HR and IT teams within the whole property and FM space. Mm. Because, you know, I, I see people talk about products and they think they came out of nowhere, whereas in reality, some products that now have a real validity within the within the um, corporate realm, you know, like tools for booking offices very simply. In the past, they were a, you know, a technology uh, RFP that was done to replace an Outlook or, or a Gmail, right? They weren't yeah. necessarily seen as being nascent to the workplace side. So, you know, I think the workplace drive is big, but I think also as workplace and real estate practitioners, we need to start thinking about those other areas. Um, you know, fascinating for me on, on my journey with Purposeful Intent, back in February, I went to a conference on the future of work and I noticed prior to, and one of the big drivers for me in going, only one person was a real estate person. And I think the big, you know, uh, shoe that's got to drop on my traditional world is that, you know, the impact that HR has, the mm. people side of the future of work, right. doesn't necessarily correlate with, um, or doesn't totally correlate with, with physical space, which a lot of the real estate and workplace people are, are looking at. So I think there needs to be that third and fourth elements around that. So workplace, real estate, HR and technology coming together to determine, you know, what are the solutions, you know, frankly, that will make our employees the most uh, effective efficient, productive. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of lot of change coming. I agree with you. I think that's a very interesting encapsulation of the kind of like state of things in terms of like how the industry is changing for commercial real estate, office space provisioning, um, and also for a little bit of the cultural element of post-COVID workplace reality where people are kind of like looking to, to your point of like not wanting to work with other lawyers, <laughs> looking to change your career to 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 avoid them um you know i think everyone feels that way uh, not just about lawyers um some lawyers are good people no i think i mean but, I think there has been a big awakening for people in terms of determining what do they really want to do you yeah. know when the world shuts down and you can't do whatever you want to do what does that make you miss the most you know for me um, and, and part of the reason I started this journey was for me, it was family. Mm -hmm. Like I love the fact that I got to spend so much time with my daughter between the ages of three and now because I was home, you know, before that I was probably traveling. Uh, I think the, the most I flew in a year was an actual flown miles was like 200,000 miles, you know, so I'm away pretty much every week. So that was a big, big change for me. And I'm seeing that change across the board. I don't think we're seeing a great resignation yet related to culture or workplace or those elements. I think it's really more just an awakening for people to realign where they want to be and what they want to do in their life. Yeah, and I, I hope I hope that's true because, you know, as someone who's lived all over the world, who's worked all over the world, run companies and worked for companies that are 
not just global in footprint, but employ up to 400,000 plus people and have seen, you know, this corrosive corporate culture that drives slaves into fear paradigms um, and giving them the joyous benefit of weekends off. <laughs> you know, that whole like 1950s bullshit yeah. is, uh, is, is pervasive, especially in North America. And I think uh, consumer corporate culture has kind of like gotten to such a point that it uh, in the pre-COVID world was at odds with challenging the status quo. People kind of felt that as long as I could buy enough stuff, you know, it would give me just enough dopamine. This is like the the tangible, you know, Instagram, TikTok reality. <laughs> uh, swipe enough, swipe hard enough, and you know, I'll be happy. Anyway, but without critiquing that stuff, um, I really have dug into culture a lot, right, and team culture. And that's something that we constantly are kind of like analyzing here at Startwell. Uh, and it's something I was telling you as we were walking into the studio that, you know, it took me five years to kind of re, or not even reassess, but to accurately pinpoint um, who the best focus is uh, within a team, uh, who the best focus of our attention and our uh, communication is to be applied uh, in organizations. And it's not necessarily the senior leaders that come together on campus in meetings, you know, SLT offsites that we facilitate all right. the time. For our, our general audience, that SLT is uh, is not a sandwich. It's, uh, it's not, there's no bacon in it or, you know, salmon instead of bacon. It is uh, a senior leadership team, right? And someone on my own team at Starwell, someone on our, our team asked me today when they saw one of our members book one of those, they were like, what's SLT mean? So like jargon kind of convolutes things, but whoever comes to Startwell to um, collaborate and innovate, hopefully, in their team sessions um, is brought here. And the people who facilitate them coming here are really, really important to us because they appreciate not only the value that their team will derive from the experience, but um, they do the legwork to figure out how to bring those people here. And... Um, that can be quite a lot in today's reality. Like every day on campus here, we're facilitating up to 20 different teams to come together. And a lot of those have suitcases. Like people will have flown right. in straight from the airport into a session at Starwell. So imagine the kind of like effort. You were talking about being kind of a like a road warrior, you know, in your previous life, pre-pandemic. A lot of people still have that reality. And if you're a leader of a big company, you know, you have to get out to the markets. Um and so it's really interesting, especially Toronto now, maybe taking a little bit of interest uh, for some organizations away from New York as being a meeting place. Um, we've seen that over the last, let's call it since Trump, uh, where people are are picking Toronto as this like northeastern, you know, North American, you know, meeting place. Um, but yeah, as people convene, there's a lot of logistics that the support staff, you know, EAs, whether it's EAs, HR people, even into culture and people, um, that they do. And, and there's a lot of difficulties, I would think, in managing hybrid realities right. and virtual teams and remote teams that are now across like 10 different time zones because we're remote first, so we have to hire in Guatemala. You know, it's crazy that the amount of stress that uh, that is probably incumbent upon people in people positions. It's a big change. And, uh, you know, I think, I think some of that stress, stress could be unfounded as well. Um, you know, the actual reason that we, or that I call the company Purposeful Intent was a nod to a friend of mine who, 
you know, he, when the pandemic started, him and I had a conversation and he said, you know, the people, there is a valid position in the office, but it needs to be with a purposeful intent, mm. right? There needs to be a reason for you to come in and something to do. It can't just be a mandated thou shalt be in the office two days a week or you must be in the office on a Wednesday because people are seeing through that already, right? They're just sort of seeing it as too genericized and, and there needs to be, you know, a real thought given to where, when and how people work to get the best out of them. Um, you know, we look at sort of that remote-only culture now, and we're certainly seeing companies that are saying, you know what, instead of having office space, we're going to bring our people together once a quarter in a different part of the world. Um, and I think we'll see more of those changes. But I think that's the big thing for me is people looking at the way that the future of work evolves with that with that purposeful intent to how they use every asset they have, human capital, physical capital, uh, and space. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's, I think, is is why we bring people together to discuss that because it's the connectivity. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, for me in life, it's the biggest driver, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Personally and professionally, it's the connections you make and, and how you maintain those and, and Honestly, how you build them. as a small business owner and as someone who's, of course, like my business is established to support the culture of other teams and other companies, it's something that I always ask people constantly, right? I'm always asking team leads to say, why don't your people bloody love working at your company why are they proud firstly are they proud to work at your company secondly are they empowered to speak on its behalf thirdly would they bring people they respect to work with them at your company right you know it's crazy but if you actually dig into stats like referrals for hr are so low across the board at almost every company like you would think that a company would naturally grow because the people who work there would want to bring in their friends to work there, right? Or It's not the case that I find anyway. And I'm sure you sometimes see very physically the opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, teams build because people are supposed to fit into cogs. I mean, there's larger questions here, right, to do with like how do you scale corporations without a purely functional mindset and of course, data and the availability of data is, is obscuring some of that stuff in terms of just assessing success for a company based off of productivity. Uh, and then the question of kind of tenure, you know, when you're looking at public companies, what is the tenure that everyone uh, has at a company and wants to have? Are people now thinking career track and wanting to stay at a company for their whole life? And if so, is it their life's work or is it to pay the bills to live? Uh, so yeah, all of these questions, of course, are being addressed now more than ever before, perhaps, or at least now more than the last 70 years. Entirely. And I think they're questions that you know, certainly in the US, people never thought they could ask before. You know, nobody mm-hmm. ever really conceived three years ago of saying to my boss, hey, can I work from home two days a week, unless it was a very progressive company, because everybody always had that argument, no, it's not going to work. And now we've had two years to prove that it actually can work. And I think, you know, I saw coming from, you know, I was born in Ireland, I uh, raised in the UK, uh, lived and traveled a lot of places. My father was an architect. And one of the things I'll always remember, you know, firstly was coming to the US, having to negotiate up my vacation from five days, which was typical at the company. Five days a year. Five days a year. I managed to negotiate it up to 10. Um, And then after two years, I got an extra 10 days. And this was coming from, you know, I came out of college to work for a bank in the UK. And day one, I had 28 days vacation. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing I found bizarre was that in Arizona, when I was working there, people were proud of not taking the whole 10 days because they felt it was more of a commitment to the company. 
you know, people would, it would be coming early, leave late, and just wasn't the mentality that I was used to. Um, and just, I think that sort of whole work to live versus live to work culture. And I think people now are looking at that in a very different way. Um, and even senior people that I know that have been very much focused on, you know, early, early mornings in the office in a suit and tie, you know, late evenings, they're at least getting to the point where you don't do an eight o'clock meeting anymore in the office, right? You do it from home and then you might go into the office. And I think giving people more of a balance has got to be a good thing, giving mm -hmm. people more agency to make the decisions about what is best for them as they work is the right way. You know, we're hearing, I think, from a lot of sort of boomers, my my biggest chagrin these days is, is actually against Alan Sugar in the UK because he, he equates working from home to just being lazy, you know, on the couch, mm. doing nothing, not wanting to succeed. And Who is this chap? Alan Sugar. He's... He was a sort of the, I mean, I guess probably the, the most closely you could equate to a, to a Donald Trump pre-Trump's oh, okay. presidency. He actually did the the uh, the equivalent of the of the Apprentice, which I think is Dragons Den in Canada in the UK. So he was sort of yeah, one they're of, different shows, different, yeah, he different was formats. One of sort of the Dragons Den's a different format of that kind of. Oh, sorry, it was more the Dragons Den. Okay, yeah. okay. it's um, kind of like sit that, on a that, panel and assess. Sit on a panel and assess company. Yeah, so Alan Sugar, he's actually founded Amstrad. Um, Amstrad was Alan Michael Sugar was the AMS in Amstrad. Um, and, you know, very, very successful, very rich, but um, his commentary is all, I think, very negative and very unfounded in terms of what people do when they work from home. And I'm, I think we see that a lot is the people that have never done it or experienced it mm -hmm. or who are probably scared to try and manage it. Mm -hmm. um, they just fear it and they try and pick holes in it. I see it all the time on a yeah. daily basis from brokers who are saying, you can't do this, you know, and then and, and sort of fit in some instances not all brokers, but in some instances, fear-mongering, trying to encourage people to be back in the office because they know that that will give them more of their deals, right? Sure. So it's, uh, oh, brokers. Don't get me started on brokers. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because that's a whole another sideline note is the pandemic kind of wiping out the cockroaches somewhat in the industry. At least here in Canada, so many brokers uh, were without income and left to choose different jobs, you know? Yeah. Uh, we've had a great calling. And it's very interesting because when we were in Toronto at 1% vacancy rate in 2019, 1%, you know, we had a, like here in Toronto, we, uh, at Startwell, we had a waiting list that was probably about, you know, a year long for people to get into an office. We're a very small campus, 20,000 square feet, you know, at the time, 9,000 square feet allocated for offices. Um, the rest, you know, common space, event space, meeting space. So we were kind of like already on the zeitgeist pre-pandemic right. coming into where we are now. Uh, it's always been a, a mission of mine to kind of get out of office space, to be honest, because carrying the risk in leasing 20,000 square feet uh, and carrying that risk for the landlord is ridiculous. Yeah, I was, I was just reading this week, I think that there's, you know, 30 million square feet of space available in London. Biggest inventory they've had, right? And that's... New York is, is like 20% or something yeah. like that. And I think it, it, it's all those different factors that are that are playing into this. And I think, you know, brokers have to evolve to survive. You know, our, yeah. our, our mutual good friend, Dave Kearns, he's one of my favorite people to read on LinkedIn because he's so thoughtful about what he's posting and talking about. And he's also still living that world every day where he's meeting people that just don't seem to get it. And, and I think a lot of it, it's a mentality where they don't want to get it. They want to be right. Um, you know, there's probably some vested interest in certain areas. This has always been the case in every industry. Brokers in general, any middleman who has not got skin in the game, I always find I'm a little biased about this. No, I'm not biased about this. I just, I've thought it through and I've experienced this in many different um, 
applications of business, I think, over the years. But like, if you're in the middle, um, you have to do such a great job if you're going to be meritous, you know, and build an illustrious career that's not just transactional, right. of being good at relationships. Yep. That's the thing. And very few people excel at that as commercial brokers. Real, you know, real estate uh, that's residential is very different because if you're putting a family in a home, uh, you know, that those guys are going to yell at you if you put them in a bad home. <laughs> right. Or at least they should. Um, but with an office space, the person who made the purchasing decision and dealt with you as a broker is probably going to get fired if it's a bad deal for some reason down the line. And then they'll come back to you to help save that day again with a new lease. So... We used to see that in 2019 where people, brokers in Toronto would be really just like cutthroat with not respecting the intent uh, or even the, uh, let's say the sustainable cultural values of a company, put them in a bad space because they knew that they were keeping them warm for the next deal and just keep milking that company over and over and over again. They were leeches, you know, a lot of them. So cool to see that changing, but you're right. I mean, it has to change. I think every industry has to um has to shed weight or or has the opportunity now post covid to kind of shed some dead weight and the technology piece of it also is going to come into play to allow brokers to do more if they understand their role uh and not be frightened by redundancy yeah and i think i think you know you're better off getting ahead of that curve right if if you can use technology and data to to understand and predict what's going to happen and you know that a client is going to reduce their space significantly then you want to be out in front of that or you don't want to be set in the back seat while they come to that conclusion themselves because they will come to that conclusion um and i think that's one of the things that's changing now we're seeing more you know landlord-based technologies that, that are being put in play we're seeing more thought around technology to help people use the office in a better way um more tie into technology to help you work in different ways better right work asynchronously work from a remote locations better and i think for me that's gonna be one of the biggest changes we'll see over the next three or four years. You know, when I look at the ecosystem that I was speaking about around sort of corporate real estate and workplace technology, there's probably about 300 systems in total. Most of those companies are probably between 10 and 15 entire staff, mm -hmm. with a few of them being in the four or five hundreds. I think what COVID is going to do, it's going to bring in some big hitters, the likes of Slack and Salesforce, uh, Google, etc., that can now realize a 10x on their investment by selling their products to a wider audience. Mm -hmm. You know, I personally see Slack as probably going to be one of the biggest enablement tools in the workplace space as a tool to help people collaborate, communicate, and I would assume ultimately to help people make better use of when they should be together, right? And if you're a five-person company and you see Slack coming your way, you know, you better watch out. And I think there's going to be I think, a, a cull of, of tech products. There are some that certainly yeah. have, have blown up over COVID and because of COVID and some that were developed just purely through COVID. So there'll be there'll be a realignment. But I think we're going to see a lot of new players into the space that oh, for sure. traditionally haven't been there. So, And for I think sure. also the widening of what work is, right? Because it was very siloed before, as I mentioned earlier. You know, IT having certain responsibility, HR having responsibility, workplace and FM having responsibility. Those, those silos have to be broken down in order for it to be meaningful again to the real consumer, which is the, the employee of the company using the space or not using the space on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a fundamentally space, commercial space or otherwise uh, physical space should empower the people uh, using it. Absolutely. And I think the best thing to empower them with is anything that 
reduces friction to their day to enable their happiness. Yep. That's that's like our thing here on Starwell is like to say happier days make for better work places, you know, or make for better work teams or however you want to explain Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I think people I think should be all, happy. We're all more effective when we're in a good mood. Yeah. And, and it's so funny because like when people are well-fed, caffeinated, hydrated, soft furnishings of their choice to sit on and, and, and no one is breathing over their neck, you know, um, and they feel empowered to be in that place and they feel like they actually chose to be there. That's another thing that's very interesting about yep. this whole get in the office cubicle kind of debate. Goldman Sachs shaking a finger at, at everybody. You know, we pay you a quarter million. Right. You want your bonus? Part of it is the the monetary motivator, you know, but to, to like do as you're told. But fundamentally, I mean, yeah, I think if people actually are empowered to feel like they made the choice to join an organization and then to stay there, um, they should own that choice. Yeah. And the I choice think, shouldn't be like dangled over them. You and know? I think also just the reduction in stress. If, you know, you've got to take your kid to the dentist or you want to go and see them play soccer and you don't have to beg and plead to your boss or worry about them looking over the cubicle and you not being there. Okay. It's so treating people like adults. It's empowering this them is funny. to do that, right? I didn't in my whole career, you know, because I'm, I'm this weird dude who's just been an entrepreneur and creative like my whole life, right? So it was kind of an inside joke with myself and the people that know me well when I actually got hired in IBM, right? Because IBM was like the, it's the quintessential, you know, evil, uh, large conglomerate multinational that doesn't care about anything and doesn't have a head. Um, answerable only to shareholder value, you know? Uh, but what was really funny was when I was, I, I didn't know any of this like Monty Pythonism to be true, until I was in the belly of the beast and, and I got a few weird kind of calls from people, you know, uh, after 500 person calls where Judy's like looking at the spreadsheet of who stayed on the call for how long, right? you right. know, those sorts of weird like reprimands that have nothing to do with, you know, my efficacy or commitment to fulfilling my role at the company. Um, and I was really surprised because it was like, it was, it was shocking. I just laughed all the time and, and I'd call it out to people and they didn't like that. And so I kept getting shanked. Um, and then my head was, was, was definitely something being hunted because the work that I was trying to get the company to do was, was way beyond its, uh, capabilities and, uh, would raise flags for people, um, I guess who didn't want to recognize the, the biases and dogmas and, and fear culture in the organization. Yep. Um, for sure. And weird stuff happens, you know, like people are just not enabled. And anyway, so I think wherever the, the corrosive corporate culture is not, moving forward at least now people are a little bit more motivated here in canada to look elsewhere you know and i think that's good i think a lot of those like stayed publicly listed zombie companies uh will find it difficult to attract the type of talent that needs to sustain their you know Absolutely. and fuel their growth and fuel their kind of constant yeah, I, think, I mean, you know, one of my biggest learnings over the last year, and actually somebody I met at the conference I referenced in London back in, in February, as a young guy with Mills Banji, you know, Mills, we actually got him to come and speak at our event in LA. Uh, and, you know, he talked a lot about attracting Gen Z black talent to employers. And it opened my eyes, right? You know, I'm an almost 50-year-old white guy, and mm. things I never even considered or thought of in the past as being blockers or stoppers, you know, which really are. You know, he, he mentioned one stat that really resonated that I think was 30% of Gen Z black talent changes their name when they come into the corporate culture because people can't pronounce their name and don't make the effort to do that, and they feel it's easier to change their identity 
than to try and push that through. And that's something yeah, it's know, pretty that fucked a, a guy up. called Simon is never going to experience. And it's like, but it makes you realize some of that. You know, I think a lot of the other aspects of, of working with, with Mills and his team on those areas is really understanding things that I would have had no clue about before. And I still only have, you know, sort of a, a partial connection to, but now I realize the importance of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the importance of being able to grow diverse teams globally, but the importance as well that it's not just a stat. You know, he, he made a very interesting reference back in London to, you know, any company that after George Floyd was murdered just put a black square on Instagram. People that were looking to, you know, potentially be employed by these companies, what do they do? They go to Google, they put in the name of the company, they look at the board and they see five white faces. They're not going to be interested in working for that type of a company. So I think technology has really helped enable people to quickly uncover, you know, the real the realities of some of these organizations that might purport to support things that they really don't. And I think we're seeing more and more of that when you look at sort of where companies are investing in the U.S., particularly in, you know, certain, um, <clears throat> you know, certain sensitive areas like, you know, abortion, et cetera, and, and some of those. Oh, right. Trying to get people space, in the right? different states to do what they need to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I as, I as a company say, yes, I'll pay for my employees to travel to a different state for a medical procedure. But on the other hand, I'm donating $2 million a year to a politician who clearly is not of that same mentality. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the fact that people call it out. It was also eye-opening for me, you know, Mills came over to LA and he's He's using the, the term woke several times, you know, and using it in the right way that people are awakened. You know, woke in the U.S. is an insult these days where in, whenever I hear it, I think it's, it is an awakening and we need that. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to be, I think, a more, you know, holistic society and more conscious of these, of these biases that we've had for years. We can't just try and ignore them, right? We need to work these things into our cultures, into our uh, companies. And as, you know, people that can sort of help lift up one of the things that we try and do at PI is is really focus on that, right? So we have internal metrics that we do publish out about diversity. So we ensure that it's at most 50% male, uh, at least 30% people of color. We're looking at bringing neurodiverse people in. We have a, um, a policy where we'll bring a couple of people to events that otherwise wouldn't be there, maybe based on their youth, maybe they're from a dis- disadvantaged community. Mm-hmm. And, and we're really focused on that. We're focused on you know, diversity of speakers. You're not going to see... That's why you invited that. me to attend because you know I'm broke ass. You're like, Kasim, don't pay anything. Just give us a place to host this event. <laughs> this is the best. This is, you know, I, I think sort of working with, with uh, like-minded individuals is the biggest drive for us. And, you know, I love being here at this space. I'm excited to welcome everyone here uh, tomorrow. And, you know, who knows where we go from here. But that's that's part of the reason that I wanted to get involved with, with what I'm doing, right, is to... Is to sort of you know see where you can go creatively, meeting new people, and what what we can do together. You know is uh, is for the future, but but I think it's exciting uh, to connect with like minded people. Agreed. Uh, let's take a step back. Purposeful intent founded when? Just during the pandemic. Uh, our first full. So yeah, I mean our, our first day of sort of uh, f- full time was on April first, um, but the date I referenced earlier. Um, having a six-year-old and also being somebody who's been very into social media my entire life, my wife has always ridiculed me for how many pictures I post on on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, but what I love now is that you know every morning when I wake up, I'll hit the memories button. I'll go back over the last five, ten years and see what we did. A lot of it is obviously focused on on my daughter these days. But something I noticed when I landed in Toronto today and I did that was a year ago I posted first in-person conference in over two years. I was heading to Las Vegas. And the reason that date is interesting to me, 
especially with being here today, um, is that was really the start of a six-week journey that culminated in Purposeful Intense Inception because I went to six different conferences and I felt that nobody was really hitting what I felt was needed post-pandemic, which was bringing these incredible people together but giving them the opportunity to talk about what they're experiencing, right? Mm -hmm. Every conference format is like, let me push some shit off the stage on you and then you go network right. over drinks at the end and then whatever. That's on you. And that's when exactly really the it. point is to get people together and get that brain trust going and have that experiential. That's why I like this whole workshop format. So tell me a little bit of the format of the event that came out of this. Yeah, so I think, you know, and again, I think based on that sort of six weeks plus 22 years of, of doing these types of events from every angle, from being an attendee, a sponsor, et cetera, um, you know, I really felt the the missing elements were very much bringing people together with a, with a sense of community. Um, so the the middle of our days, we do three one hour workshops, facilitated workshops. All we bring as purposeful intent to the table is great facilitators on a topic. So some of the topics we're going to talk about tomorrow include demystifying the metaverse. Uh, we're going to talk about actionable data for the workplace. Um, and what we do is come up with those topics and then have a discussion with the groups around what what is important to them. Mm-hmm. So we don't pre-can any content. We're not presenting. We're facilitating a discussion. And, and there's been a real benefit in terms of, you know, getting people to communicate together um, on, uh, you know, in those subjects. We bookend that with, um, with speakers. Um, but what I also do and commit to, the speakers will never be paid. Uh, sorry, the spe- people will never pay to speak. Okay, they, they will be thank paid. you for clarifying that. <laughs> um, and uh, and then the other aspect is I try and get people that are sort of on the on the fringes of of the industry. Um, I've certainly sat at many conferences, and you hear somebody speak, and you think I could probably do this. Mm-hmm. I want people that are going to make really people stand up and 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 question everything that they've thought in the past. Um, tomorrow we have two tremendous speakers. Um, Linda Nazareth, whose background is is really from an economics perspective, and she's going to talk about, you know, what's happening uh, in sort of the the future and and, and really the why mm. of work as we go forwards. And then uh, Eric Termiendi, um is coming into town, and he's going to really focus on sort of some of that futuristic aspects of how do you build teams. So a lot of what you were just talking about, Kasim, um, you know, how do you build teams that can shift to this new way of working. So, you know, these aren't real estate people. They're not people that think about things like space plans and allocations and furniture. These are, you know, people that are really thinking on a, a much more macro level. And that's what we want to do is is bring in that thought. And then, you know, my other bugbear with conferences has always been you don't necessarily get great experiences from a networking perspective. They're not they're not always inclusive. Um, so what we do with our events is you know, we put we put on a great dinner uh, for Toronto. We're putting on a great dinner in the evening that everybody who's been part of the day is invited to. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done more extreme things in the past, and we will again. Um, probably the most memorable our, our first event we had. Uh, you mentioned earlier being a, uh, a wannabe rapper when we were younger, but we had uh, DMC from Run DMC perform live. Amazing! But in addition to that, he did a phenomenal fireside chat about. Um, lots of things, but including, you know, creativity, diversity, inclusion, you know, being a young black kid with glasses who liked poetry was essentially his background. Sure. Now that made him into one of the world's, you know, foremost rappers. Um, But I think hearing those conversations and about, you know, how he innovated, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. We saw a lot of parallel between him 
and our first speaker that day, a gentleman called Duncan Wardle, who we're going to bring back in San Francisco. And Duncan's background, he was the former head of creativity and innovation at Disney. But the thought patterns of a, of a you know, a, a, a Disney executive with how they reimagine their um, uh, parks and a young aspiring rapper and how he imagined the lyrics were incredibly tied together. So mm-hmm. it was... Uh, I think, you know, a really interesting insight. And a lot of it, you know, does gear around those topics we talked about of, of innovation and, you know, bringing what Duncan calls naive experts to the table. He has some tremendous stories about one that will resonate with me, you know, was about sort of how they developed some of the spaces in um, in Disney in Shanghai. Um, they, they brought in a pastry chef uh, to one of their meetings when they were talking about development of space. And he did this exercise where he asked everybody to draw a building and or draw a house right <clears throat> and i'm sure you and i would have various different variants on you know drawing a square with a with a triangle on top and a window and a, couple, a door and a couple of windows i'm not five years old man or maybe a, maybe <laughs> if you're you know more design aesthetic you might take it 3d uh well the, the pastry chef uh, lady she actually drew a house that looked like um a, a chinese bun and that was actually the inspiration for some of the houses they put into Disneyland in Shanghai. Cool. Um, and I just love that concept. And that's sort of something that, that, that I want to take to our events of having that sort of expert, but not somebody who's who's going to tell you things you might think you already know. So Absolutely. I mean, it's really critical for people to be able to think outside of the box. And to do that, you almost need to shine light into the box. Yeah, for sure. Cool, man. No, I'm very stoked for tomorrow. Um so Purposeful Intent has been how many sessions so far? How many different cities? Uh, this will be our sixth city. Um, so we had uh, we, we started off uh, in Phoenix, where I'm based in, in February. We did a small event in San Diego. Um, and then we did events in uh, New York, L.A., uh, Toronto. And actually, uh, this is five. Six will be in San Francisco at the end of the year. Um, and I'm stoked because last week I got word that we're going to host it at Salesforce's Ohana floor. Um, you know, beautiful space, all about connection and connectivity. Um, so, you know, I feel like we're moving things in the right direction and, and getting getting good visibility. And, and I think sort of, you know, just changing the game in terms of how people are looking at connections and, and networking and, and learning together. So, What's the uh, plan for next year, do you think? Anything that's on the docket as of now? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at the cities. Um, it's going to be a combination you know, we've certainly seen sort of the, we have to be thoughtful in terms of where we bring the city, bring the events. We tried to do an event in a city and just didn't get any interest, you know, as a, as a, as a sort of CEO of a one and a half person startup, that was my biggest learning this year. But luckily we, you know, we pivoted quickly enough that we were able to move it. Um, But I think, you know, at the outset, uh, we're going to look at doing uh, probably Boston, LA, San Diego, um, we will probably do New York again. Uh, Definitely the drive. Toronto. Definitely. Toronto, potentially Montreal. Um, and then we're also going to do a couple of, of what I would call pop-up events. So we're going to go down to Australia um, and probably do, a, you know, in the same week, do an event in Melbourne, one in Sydney, and do the same in Europe, uh, determining yet where. But I think for me, part of that is really is to look at the international perspective, right, and hear different things. I mean, I, you know, eight years or so ago, I was working for an Australian company called Cereview, and... At the time, you know, the Australian market, they were way ahead of the curve when it came to activity-based work. You know, they were very much a company that already, or country, where people already had that balance, right? Their focus was more on what they did for outside of work than in work. Right, um, right. And they very developed, lifestyle focus. Yeah, yeah, and developed real estate solutions to, to meet that need. So I'm, I'm fascinated actually to go down there just to hear 
and and that's the other beauty of these events right is is to hear what people are actually doing and experience that right and and intriguingly you know for me I've had several of my sponsors come up to me and just be like wow Simon we learned so much just by sitting back and listening to uh you know our audience which is typically real estate and workplace executives talk about what they're experiencing um so you know that's uh, that's sort of part of the reason for the for the growth to uh, to other other countries so um and this is what you do now right is this the only thing that you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is my uh, my full time gig. I mean, I do I do some consulting for some of the. My background is all in in really the tech world, so I do consulting for sort of some of the tech startups in our space to help them build out their products. I, you know, you mentioned earlier about about the solutions out there. We still see solutions to problems that don't exist, but I've also conscious in my background of seeing products that if they had a different sales leader or a different focus or they had some connectivity to the industry would have been very successful that have failed and so what i try and do is work with companies and brands where i feel they have something unique and help them grow in whatever way possible whether that's with you know introductions to the to the pi community and the right types of people to help them um, or you know simply talking developing you know functional requirements and helping them with processes etc so that's kind of what i do to uh in my spare time when we're not uh, working on the events totally dovetails with the events yeah yeah absolutely that's awesome yeah i see a mentorship network this turnkey right not just you yeah absolutely you know we bring we'll bring six facilitators tomorrow um all people with very different backgrounds and experiences but all people that could be a benefit to to PI and the wider network as they go through you know the different challenges they're facing. So everything from you know organizational design to physical design to obviously tomorrow's focus is more on the technology. But in the past we've done you know focuses around uh, DE and I innovation. So you know the the people the core of PI in terms of the learnings are certainly the moderators that are that are helping bringing out the right types of discussions. So. Always grateful to uh, to them for uh, for participating in in our events. Excellent, man! Wicked, cool. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Uh, we're uh, super excited for tomorrow and uh, excited for uh, a future future with uh, Startwell. So. Absolutely, it'll be long and illustrious. Love it. All right, mate. <laughs> that was good.